Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I want to talk about idealism and um, also just how to kind of how to how, how to how to live in this world in a realistic way, um, but uh, somehow factoring in idealism at the same time. In other words, we tend to think that um, that I- idealism is is sort of like this sort of like happy blanket that we put on over the the true grim reality of the world, but that it's not really consistent with with reality. And that somehow it's a, idealism is, is, is a bit of a band-aid. Um, but that's not really the Jewish view. The Jewish view is that there actually is a, a tremendously happy ending to, to the world and to our lives and everything like that. And then if a person actually lives in this world idealistically, they're actually in touch with, with the actual reality of the world. So again, that's that's a very that's a very big idea. That's a, almost like a revolutionary idea. That to be optimistic is actually to be realistic. I'll say that again. To be optimistic is actually to be realistic, because the end of the world, the destiny of the world, is a happy ending. So the reason why I'm bringing this up right now is because it's it's very much relating to the the, the period of the year that we're in. And there's a beautiful teaching. There's we're counting the Omer right now. Um, we're going from from Egyptian servitude, from slavery to the ultimate freedom, to to Mount Sinai, to the revelation of 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 God. I heard Rabbi Edin Steinsold say something so beautifully. What was the incredible thing that happened at Mount Sinai? For thousands of years, people had spoken to God. At Mount Sinai, God spoke back. God spoke back to to everyone. Right, that's that that's amazing. That, that, that's an amazing thought. So we're going from the lowest place, and we're journeying to the highest place. And so this period um, during the year, we have this special mitzvah called counting the Omer, where every single day from Pesach, we're counting one more day, counting up, 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 up until we hit the number forty-nine, and then that's the last number that we count, and then the fiftieth day. We get the Torah from heaven. That's the holiday of Shavuos. That's when, when, when we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. Okay. So now listen to this. This is from Reb Leib Hirsch, the, the Eretz Svi. That's the name of his Sefer. One of the greatest uh, rabbis of the 20th century. He, he died in Medanic um, at the hands of the Nazis, but was just really one of the, the greatest rabbis in the early part of the 20th century. And he says something which are... Words for us to live by. He says, if you look at the mitzvah in the Torah that tells us to, to count the Omer, to count each day from, from Passover leading up to getting the Torah at Mount Sinai, right? From going from the lowest place all the way up to the highest place. If you look at the way that that, that mitzvah in the Torah is phrased, it says that you begin counting from after Shabbos. All right? So on a here and now level, what that means is, um, in, in this version, the rabbis teach us that, that the word Pesach, the holiday of Pesach and Shabbos, are sort of synonymous. So, so, um, so you start counting from after Shabbos, 
What that means is, after the first day of Pesach, that's when you count the first day. Okay. So that hopefully that's very clear. After Pesach, after you have the Seder the first night, the second night you've been, been counting one, and then the next day two, three, four, all the way up to 49, and then the 50th day we get the Torah. Okay, all very good. But he goes to a very, very deep place. He says, what does it mean that you begin counting from after Shabbos? Or as the rabbis explain it to us, what does it mean that you begin counting from after Pesach? Right? Pesach means freedom. That means that, you see, the destiny of the world is perfection. God, God didn't create the world for the world to be broken for all time. You know, I, I, I always say, it's like my theme song. You know, this is maybe the, the Torah I've said more times than any other Torah, but it's because it's so necessary. You, I, 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 I really feel as though you can't understand your life and you can't understand the world unless you understand the following thing. So everyone has the same question, which is, if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? Every, everyone, everyone is wondering this, you know? And the answer is because the world isn't finished yet. You see, the, the, the deep sort of existential crisis that, that everyone is in is thinking that this is the world that God created and meant to create. That this is it. This is the finished product. We're living in the finished product of God's work. And if, if that's a person's attitude, then yeah, life is confounding. This world is essentially a horrible place. If, if God, who's perfect, created this world with so much suffering, with so much injustice, if this is the end result of God's work, then we're all in a lot of trouble. Except that's not the Torah view. That's not what Judaism says at all. Judaism says that God created the world with the intent of creating a perfected world, and that he created human beings to be partners with him to bring the world about to his initial vision, which is perfection. In other words, all of us are here to be partners with God in terms of finishing off the world, creating that perfected world. That's what we're doing. That, that, that's what this is right now. So we're still getting to that place. Now, fascinatingly, there are different names for that perfected era. And, and one of the most beautiful ones, and this is what the Eretz Svi is drawing on. We're going to get back to that teaching. What does it mean? Begin your counting from after Shabbos. What does that mean on a deep level? Well, the Messianic period, this era of perfection that the world was created for, which is, the, which is where the world is driving toward every single day, is called Yom Shekulo Shabbos. That era is called the day that will be all Shabbos. So Shabbos and perfection and the ultimate utopia, these are all synonyms, okay? Now you see this in a very interesting way, by the way. Um, and the Ramban points this out. Everybody knows Shabbos is the seventh day of the week, right? And everybody knows 
that that in the beginning of of Breshis, in the beginning of Genesis, God runs through each of the days of creation. This is day one. This is the second day, the third day, all the way to the seventh day, which is the day of rest. Right? It says God rested on that day. So the Ramban says each one of those days is hinting at 1,000 years. And we have a tradition that in the 6,000th year, it can happen as early as the 6,000th year, into the 7,000th year, the Talmud tells us that will be the year of perfection. That's when the world culminates and, and, and that initial vision of God becomes realized in this world, that year of perfection, that day that will be, that era that will be all Shabbos. Now, isn't it interesting? Do you see how the first seven days of creation, as explained by the Torah, are actually a microcosm of the timeline of world history? That the seventh day correlates with the 7,000th year, so to speak. And that it's all spelled out. The game plan is all spelled out right in the beginning of the Torah. So, so the takeaway from this is that that era of perfection is the day that we call, is that, is that period that we call the day that will be all Shabbos, Yom Shekulah Shabbos, the Messianic era. Okay, so now let's go back to Reb Tzvi, Leib Hirsch, rather, the Eretz Tzvi. And he says, you know, this period of time, this period of the year, from Pesach to Shavuos, this is an era, this is, this is the period of time where we're sort of like concentrating on making ourselves into vessels to be able to hold this exalted light of the Torah, right? Like, you know, you can, you can have the finest wine. Can you imagine like someone wants to pour you the finest, finest wine? This, this bottle of wine costs hundreds and hundreds of dollars, right? And you're like, wow. You're going to share that with me? I, I can't believe it. Yes, please. Thank you. And they pour you a glass and they keep on pouring into your glass. And there's a hole on the bottom of your glass. And all of this wine, right, is like some of the best wine in the world, right? In an auction, it would go for thousands of dollars. It's all spilling all on the ground. You're not getting a drop of it. Why? Because there's a hole on the bottom of your cup. You know, interestingly, the last word of a lot of prayers is shalom. Shalom comes from the Hebrew word shlemus, which means completeness, which means that you're a vessel without a hole on the bottom of it. You're a vessel that can hold all of the light, all of the blessings that are coming your way. The, the last word of the Birkat HaMazon, the benching, the, the grace after meals, is shalom. The last word um, uh, of the Talmud is Shalom. The last word of the Birkas Kahanim, the priestly blessing, is Shalom. Because we want to be a complete and whole vessel so that we can hold this light. So this period between Pesach and Shavuos we're trying to make ourselves vessels that can contain that light, which means that we want to purify ourselves. You see, can you imagine? I'll give you another example. 
like the top chef in the world is cooking a meal for you and he serves it on a dirty plate. <laughs> like this plate has like all the flavors of whoever ate a meal, like, you know, from whatever place, you know, and it's sort of like, there it is. There's like a dirty plate and he's putting like all this amazing food on it. So what are you tasting when you eat the food? Like this is the best food in the world. You're tasting all the junk, like this old food from who knows what. So again, that's the idea of us wanting to purify our own vessel. Like we want that light. We don't want to taste our own imperfection. So during this period between Pesach and Shavuos, we're cleaning ourselves out. We're trying to make ourselves just... um, the receptacles of like like the highest, highest thing, right? Okay. So the Eretzvi says that takes a lot of strength. All right, now we're going to tie everything together that we've been talking about up until now. So the question is, right? Like, like whenever you're learning Torah, like if, it's, if it gets too abstract, you know, you got to ask yourself, What are we learning? What are we talking about? Like, what have we been talking about just right now, this whole time? What are we talking about? We're talking about where do I get the strength to fix myself? We're talking about where do I get that strength to remain idealistic and not to think that, you know what, I'm just playing games. Really, the world is a very dark place and, you know, as a coping mechanism, I'm going to try to be idealistic just so I can get through this slog of this world, right? Because that's not it. There really is a happy ending. And if a person wants to live in reality, they really do have to be optimistic. So now let's tie it all together. So the Eretz Tzvi says the following. That's what the Torah is telling you on a very deep level when it says, begin counting from after Shabbos. So, so we told you on the here and now level, those are like very sort of practical instructions. Since Shabbos and Pesach, the rabbis are telling us are, are essentially the same. That's what the verses is, is talking about. So from the second day of Pesach, you begin counting, okay? But on a deep, 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 deep level, the Eretz is telling us, if you want to get through this world, if you want to have the strength to fix yourself, begin your account of reality from the world that's going to exist after the great Shabbos. After Shabbos doesn't mean the seventh day. After Shabbos means after the world has become perfected, after we dwell in the era that is all Shabbos. If you begin your account of your here and now reality from the place that the world is destined to go in, and the place that, by the way, exists in the eyes of God right now, because remember, God exists outside of time, which means God sees the past, the present, and the future, all at once. Which means, since he's promised to bring this perfected era, that means since God exists outside of time, 
from God's point of view, it already exists. That's a, that's a very important point. That's a very important point because, you see, so many of us think that, that, that we just believe these things. But that, are they true? I don't know, but I want to believe that they're true. But is it true? I don't know. So what do you believe? I believe that I want to believe it's true. <laughs> As they say, it's a level. <laughs> it's a level. But it's not the highest level. The highest level is to understand that it actually is true. And what you are doing is you are putting your, your understanding in sync with what the ultimate reality is, even if it hasn't been revealed before our eyes yet. And that's what the Torah is teaching us. The Torah is teaching us what the reality of the world is right now, even though it hasn't been fully revealed yet. So you say, well, so then you know? Well, I I don't know, but, but this is what God is telling us is going on. So this perfected era actually exists. It actually exists. It hasn't been revealed to us yet. But because God is outside of time and God has already created it, it's already in the world. And a person has the ability to draw that light. Listen to this. This is very important. This is a new thought right now. Because it exists, even though it's not revealed before our eyes, but because it exists in the world, Remember, that was the whole destiny of the world. The whole point of creating the world was to create this perfected realm. So God for sure did it already within his trans-temporal abilities, right? God's beyond time, right? But the idea is this realm actually exists and that you can draw the light from that realm into this world right now. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. The light of perfection is already in this world. And you can draw on that light right now and bring it into this world. And how do we do that? We do it through Torah study. We do it through acts of kindness. We do it through mitzvahs. In that way, we become sort of pipelines drawing that light into this here and now reality. So, so how do we do it? And let me just tell you a historical note. This is just kind of one of my favorite things in the world. I love this. Um, I learned this from Rabbi Cardozo that one of the great philosophers um, in secular in the secular world it was uh, named Schopenhauer, and apparently Schopenhauer was really a curmudgeon, like really like a, a misanthrope, like you know not not happy with people, not happy with this world, and he hated Jews, 
And you ready for this? Like for all the reasons to hate Jews, I think this is my favorite reason to hate Jews. Okay. He hated Jews because they brought optimism into the world. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? So, but we say that's the reality. He saw it as a band-aid. He saw it as just sort of this grand misdirection. But we say it's the truth. We say the world really does have a happy ending. You know, I work in Hollywood um, uh, as a writer, producer, um, and there's a phrase that I don't know if people use it so much. When I was growing up, they used it. And for sure, before I was born, they used it a lot. Um, I used to hear it more anyway. But it's a great phrase, a very interesting phrase. I want to analyze it a little bit. It's called the Hollywood ending. So the Hollywood ending meant that it's sort of like, you know, basically a happy ending. Right? Somehow you'd see all sorts of problems and the characters would go. You know, if you've ever watched one of the most beloved movies is It's a Wonderful Life. Um, that's become a classic for, uh, you know, the uh, December, end of December. You'll, you'll see it played all the time to this day. And people love this movie. And, and I watched it a few years ago. It is the most depressing movie in the world. I mean, Jimmy Stewart, they drag Jimmy Stewart through the mud for like, I don't know how long the movie is, for an hour and a half. But at the end, they somehow found a way, Frank Capra, whoever wrote the thing, to give a happy ending. And because of all the misery you've been through, and because you actually believe that happy ending, because they made it very credible, because it's a classic, right? They, they pulled it off. You like, ah, it's like there's like this, there's like this epiphany that you experience. That's, that's the Hollywood ending, right? Just this happy ending. It's like a couple has a problem, but then they're, they get married, they're happy, whatever it is. So you want to hear something interesting? Hollywood was actually founded. There's, and I, I always recommend this book if you, if you want to, uh, see the history in detail in an in a, in interesting way. It's called An Empire of Their Own by Neil Gabler. Very interesting uh, history. Uh, very readable, very easy to read. And basically, he goes through each of the major um, studios uh, in Hollywood and shows how they were all, with, with the exception of, I think, one, were all founded by, by Jewish immigrants. Um, interestingly, he said a lot of them were furriers. And... <laughs> Isn't that funny that that the that the Hollywood movie studio business was 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 created by a bunch of furriers from like a lot of them were from Russia, right? And 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 the way these furriers would work was was in terms of piecemeal, right? Like someone would make the um, someone would make the collar on on one part of the assembly line, and another person would make the sleeves, and another person would make the coat. And then they would put them all together and sew them all together. So if you think of it in that way, it's interesting. Someone's going to write the script. Another person's going to direct the script. Then we're going to get someone to edit the script, right? And so you actually see the, the, the manufacturing of, of, of clothing was sort of like the model that they used for, for movie making. 
Um, because if you think about it, that's we're so used to thinking that, of course, that's how you would do it. But but it's not necessarily an intuitive process. Why not one person's going to write it and direct it? And, you know, that, that, that seems to be at least equally intuitive, right? Um, okay. So... So let's let's get back to this idea about just the Hollywood ending because, you know, these these people these people who who founded the studio system were for the most part secular Jews, meaning to say they they weren't keeping Shabbos, say, right? Um, and yet you see that the soul the soul of a Jewish person is so tied in with this utopian vision that even 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 these secular people basically were imbuing their work with this utopian point of view because it's so jewish it's so jewish to understand that there is a happy ending at the end that's the point that's the point and that it comes out of us in all sorts of Unexpected ways. You know, many people have pointed out that a lot of the, they say, a lot of the isms, right? Meaning to say like communism or, you know, all the all these sort of like um, utopian visions, secular utopian visions, a lot of them had Jews behind them. Oh, you know something? We have uh, some interference entering the line. If everyone could just hit mute in the corner of their screen, that, that would be great. There's some interference coming onto the line. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just just hit mute in the corner of your screen, please. So um, so anyway, again, how how do you count for the fact that a lot of world movements that have influenced tens of millions of people have been started by this this tiny tiny group of people, the Jewish people, and it's because in our DNA, in our souls is this intensely utopian point of view. And, and, and if it doesn't get expressed through the lens of the Torah, it will get expressed in other ways. Right? But unfortunately, because God is the architect of the world, and because God gave us his Torah in order to harmonize all the energies of the world, if we don't do it through a Torah perspective, it doesn't end up great. You know, communism, which is like, what, what, what could be better? What, what could be more utopian than the idea instead of like one person owning a factory and thousands of people working for that one person who gets the lion's share of the wealth? Why not have the workers themselves own the factory? Like, the idea is fantastic. Why not? That, that sounds like perfect justice, right? There's something very beautiful and utopian about that. And yet, cut to millions and millions and millions of people dying because of that. A horrible ending. A horrible ending to that story. So... So what is that great what is that great filter 
where we can harmonize all of the energies of the world, bring this happy ending into the world. What is that filter? What is that, what is that vehicle? So we can really be abstract. We can say it's kindness and it's all sorts of things, love, all, all sorts of things. And, and you wouldn't be incorrect, right? But I want to drill down because the Torah is very, very specific. And I want to go further into this idea that we started off with. Do you know what the real central element of bringing all of these utopian visions into the world is? Is keeping Shabbos. And I'm going to to tell you how. I'm going to show you how, okay? See, the Talmud says that a person who doesn't keep Shabbos, it's like they broke all the mitzvahs. And a person who does keep Shabbos, even if they worship idols, they're okay. All right? I'm paraphrasing. But that's like, wow. A person who doesn't keep Shabbos isn't allowed to be an official witness. So in other words, a person who doesn't keep Shabbos on some very deep level is lacking some sort of essential credibility. Okay, now I don't want to make anyone feel bad if they're not keeping Shabbos yet. You know, Shabbos is, 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 a, is a big thing to aspire to. And I know in my life, I didn't start keeping Shabbos till I was 24. And it was a very long process for me, me to get to that place. So this isn't about, am I keeping it yet? Am I not keeping it yet? The main thing is, let's just hear the idea right now, okay? And we can all aspire to it, because even aspiring to it is a very great mitzvah. So the idea of Shabbos is that with our lives, we testify that there's only one power in the world and that God is running everything. We, we have the, the, the courage, and it takes a lot of courage, the courage and the bravery to withdraw from our own lives in a very essential way, and to say, I believe that it's God that's running the world. I'm a partner with God. What I do counts, and it's important. But God himself is running the world. And you know what? I'm going to show you that it's the case. I'm not going to work. And you're going to see the world is still going to spin on its axis. (laughs) I'm still going to have food. (laughs) The world is not going to fall apart. In fact, The world is going to get closer to its level of perfection. This is an unbelievable thing that the Jewish people do when they withdraw on Shabbos. And the amazing thing is, is that what is Shabbos? Shabbos is like you're sort of delighting in what's actually there instead of trying to turn it into something else all the time. One of the deepest teachings that I ever heard, I love this teaching so much, is I heard it from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe. He said the following, What's the difference between Simcha and Oneg? 
So these are two Hebrew words. I'll translate them in a second. Um, and both of them seem to mean the same thing. So Simcha, Reb Shlomo translated as joy. And Oneg, he translates as bliss. Okay, so what's the difference between joy and bliss? Okay. And keep in mind that bliss is the word that's associated with Shabbos. Like we have Oneg Shabbos, right? Okay, so now listen to this. Unbelievable. Joy is when God gives me something that I didn't have before. Bliss is when God shows me what it is that I've had all along. Joy is when God gives me something that I didn't have before. Bliss is when God shows me what it is that I've had all along. Shabbos, which is Oneg, Shabbos, which is bliss, Shabbos, by allowing us to get out of the rat race, so to speak, to withdraw from trying to change the world over and over and over and over in terms of whatever our work is. Shabbos gives us the eyes to see the perfection that's already in the world and and the perfection that the world is heading toward. You see, every Shabbos, because what did we say earlier? We said that the world is heading toward an era where everything will be Shabbos. The Messianic era is called Yom Shekulah Shabbos, the period of history that will be all Shabbos. And what happens is, every Shabbos in our own lives, every seventh day in our own lives, God allows us to draw a little bit of that light into the world and experience that light of perfection in our lives right now. See, I'll tell you something that I heard in the name of the Ari, something very, very deep. He said, do you, you, you know, each person has like um, two twin engines, right? What, what are the two twin engines, the twin engines of each person to do and to stop yourself from doing? Okay. You can do and you can refrain. Both of those things take effort. It takes effort to do something. And it takes effort to stop yourself from doing something. Okay? The Ari, or I heard of the name of the Ari, said something something very amazing. That when we ate from the fruit in the Garden of Eden, from the Tree of Knowledge, right? That we damaged that impulse. We damaged this deep intuitive understanding of when to do and when not to do. Right? Because when we did what we weren't supposed to do, and it basically damaged our our hardware, so to speak. Because now we weren't like, sure, should I do this? Should I not do this? And, And that's why If you think about it, all of the mitzvahs in the Torah are divided up into two categories. What we call mitzvahs ase, do this. Mitzvahs lotase, don't do that. 
Do you understand how they're coming to correct our humanity, essentially? There's a very deep teaching that the sages teach. They say that that the word for carving, like when you carve in a stone, is the same word in Hebrew as the word for freedom. Now, if you think about that, that's really like perplexing. Because if I carve a a line in a stone, that line isn't going anywhere. (laughs) That line is permanently there. So, So what are you telling me that that is freedom, right? It seems like it's the opposite of freedom. So I heard Rabbi Carmi say one time, it just, I loved it so much. He says that this is getting back to the idea that, that, that we don't know when to act and when not to act, and that that's what got damaged in the Garden of Eden, right? And he's explaining how could it be that the, that the engraving in the stone, and it's talking about the, the letters in the Ten Commandments, right? That's, that's what it's talking about, engraving in the stone, that, which contains the whole Torah, that, that that, don't read engraved, but read freedom from that word. So how are the mitzvahs freeing us? That's the question. That's what it's saying. And, and, and the way Rabbi Carmi put it is, he said, we're all neurotic. And, and that life, is, it's like a series of moving targets. We don't know, do we go in this direction or should we go in that direction? Or, and we're constantly making ourselves crazy. I, I don't know what the right choice is. I don't know which direction to go in. But what if the target gets fixed? What if good and evil gets defined? What if the, the things that we're supposed to concentrate in our lives are revealed and become clear? Then all of a sudden we're free from our own neurosis. Okay, then, then there's still the process of effort. And then there's still our own humanity. We, we have good days and we have bad days. We make mistakes. We, we take one step forward. We take two steps backward. All of that's true. But at least the goals are fixed. At least there's clarity. And that's what it means that the word engraved and the word free in Hebrew are the same word. Because the goals are fixed. They're engraved. They're not moving around anymore. And once that happens, I become free from my own second guessing. Then I know when to do and when not to do, because I have the blueprint through the mitzvahs. Then I can get back to the Garden of Eden. Then I can get back to knowing what to do at the right time. Now again, still I'll make mistakes. But those mistakes will only bring me closer, because I'll understand the teachings on a deeper level. Remember, the, the, the rabbis say in the, the most exalted way that where a Baal Tshuva stands, where someone who returns back to God out of love, where that person stands, the perfect tzaddik, the person who's never ever made a mistake in their life, can't even stand in that same place. The person who made mistakes and then fixes them stands above the perfect person. I heard Rabbi Meir Fun say something so, so beautiful. He says, if you have like a ceramic bowl and you drop it, and you put it back together again. It never looks as good as it did before you broke it. He says, but you know what? If you have a vase and you break it and you put it back together again, right? We're talking about our lives, the mistakes that we make. 
He says, in the eyes of heaven, when you put it back together again, it looks even better than it did before it was broken. That's what it means that the Baal Tshuva, the person who rectifies their life, stands even higher than the perfect tzaddik. So, I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper into this idea of Shabbos. So, so we have six days of the week and we have Shabbos. So on the six days of the week we work, and on the seventh day of the week we get a taste of perfection. And we get the ability to see that everything is from God and that the world is heading in the most perfect place. Those are the eyes of Shabbos. We get to appreciate everything that we have. Six days of the week we work, on the seventh day we rest. Now listen to this. On the six days of the week, everything is concealed. The fact that God is running the world is concealed. On the seventh day of the week, it becomes revealed. God is running the world. I can withdraw. I can show up, not show up at the office, and my business didn't collapse. Right? God is running the world. And by the way, I, as someone who writes scripts and tells stories, I, I, I really like this idea. I don't know who I heard it from, but I love it which is that all of us are telling stories with our lives. All of us are telling stories with the choices that we make and the lives that we lead. And anyone who keeps Shabbos, this is one of the primary stories that they're telling to all the people who know them, to their children, to their grandchildren, to their neighbors. The story that they're telling is, look at me. I didn't show up at the office and the world didn't fall apart. Because God runs the world. That's the story that the Jewish people have been telling to the entire world. Since the beginning. So now, the Eretzvi says the following. He brings a Torah from the Shalah, HaKodesh, right? One of our greatest Kabbalists and greatest greatest rabbis. So the Shalah says the following. He says, there's a little bit of Shabbos in every day. (laughs) Okay? During the six days of the week, that little bit of Shabbos, that little bit of holiness is concealed. On the seventh day of the week, it's revealed. So now, listen to the following. Very, very interesting, okay? And we're getting deeper now. We're getting deeper. You see, we're mirroring God. Just like during the six days of the week, God is, so to speak, compared to Shabbos anyway. I mean, if you understand that the only thing that exists is God, which hopefully we all know that, that the only thing that exists is God, then you're going to see God seven days a week. Okay. But during the first six days of the week, God is concealed. And it looks like we have to work. If we don't work, nothing happens. 
So, so how do we, here's the question, you ready? How do you keep Shabbos during the six days of the week? <laughs> See, I, I don't want to just keep Shabbos on Shabbos. I want to keep Shabbos seven days of the week. If you're telling me that the Messianic period is called Yom Shekula Shabbos, the day that is all Shabbos, I want to keep Shabbos all week. How do I do it? So here's here's how you do it. During the week, I understand there's a little bit of Shabbos in every single day. That's from the Shalah, right? A little bit of perfection. So on the outside, it looks like I'm working. I get dressed, I leave the house on time, right? I show up at the office, I'm making phone calls, however we work, right? Sitting at the computer, however we work. But on the inside, I know, even during the six days of the week, that it's really God who's running the world. And when I know during the six days of the week, even though I'm working, I'm staying up, maybe I'm staying up all night. Sometimes I stay up all night working, right? But on the inside, I know that God is running the world. And that's how you can keep Shabbos during the six days of the week. And then on the seventh day of the week, it's like that aspect which was hidden becomes revealed. Now, I'm going to tell you something even more amazing. What if I told you that the purpose of keeping Shabbos was not the first six days of the week, but the six days of the week after Shabbos? (laughs) In other words... Keeping Shabbos is to give us strength for re-entering the world. I'll explain what I'm saying. I know I'm not communicating yet. So the Eretzvi brings a teaching. He was a, a chassid of the Sakachover Rebbe, right? The first Sakachover Rebbe was the, the son-in-law of the Kutzka Rebbe, okay? So you're getting a little Kutzk here too, right? But this is from the Sakachava Rebbe. He talks about the Nazir. The, the Torah talks about the Nazir. So the Nazir was a, a very fascinating uh, individual. Could be a man, could be a woman. And the Nazir is someone who decides not to drink wine for a period of time. And remember, back in the day, wine was was really a like a like a daily beverage. You know, wine was pretty much more central to our diets and to our lives than it is today. Um, And wine was, you know, also intoxicating back then and could also, you know, kind of lead you to make um, bad decisions, right? And and to leave the Torah, right? To go with your impulses or desires of the moment. So a Nazir is someone who really wants to uh, jumpstart their holiness, and so there was a vow that a person could take that, they, that they're not going to drink any wine. 
And there are other things that went along with it. They would grow out their hair for a period of time. So, so the shortest period of Naziris would be 30 days. And the idea is that you were a very sincere person who, who wanted to exercise self-control, basically. Okay? And at the end of the period of time, the, after you, you know, go back into normal society again, you re-enter society, so now you're drinking wine again, right? At the end of that period of time, the Torah still calls you a Nazir, which is like one of those great questions in the Torah. Like, wait a second, this person has just finished being a Nazir. Why is the Torah still calling them a Nazir? So the Sokachover Rebbe says, because that was the whole point of them becoming a Nazir to begin with. They take all the lessons that they learned from being a Nazir, and now even though they're not subject to the laws of it anymore, they can still drink wine, they can get haircuts and all the rest, but now they're still a Nazir, meaning to say they've taken all the lessons, all the spiritual elevation that they got from that period of their lives, and they're bringing it back into the rest of their lives. So the Sokachever Rebbe says, this is, and the Eretzvi drawing on him says, this is what Shabbos is for us. The first six days, right, when we were working and then we get to Shabbos, and then we bring that, that exalted realization that everything is from God in a revealed way, that I can withdraw from the world, and still the world is continuing, that God is running the world, that I'm testifying with my life that God is running the world then I have to bring that realization into the next six days. And then that person then becomes this sort of beacon of light. Because then it becomes clear when you interact with them all seven days of the week that there's only one God in the world, that God's running absolutely everything. You become like a, a Shabbos a Yid. You're able to radiate that light in the most amazing way. Okay. We can stop here. Is... So the, the, the portion of the week that we're going to read the Shabbos is um, Bahar. And Bahar is talking about Shabbos. It's talking about the Shabbos of the land. It's talking about what we call Shemitah. Shemitah is this idea that, um, that, that, that this, this is not just a, a time-bound idea but that, that the concept of Shabbos enters into our physical reality, meaning to say that we let the earth rest for an entire year, every seventh year. So, so it's, it's an important idea because, because Shabbos is the thing that cuts through time and space, right? Through the, through, through the physical, non-human world as well. Right? And, and it shows you um, the centrality of Shabbos because what, what we say is that um, on the first six days, 
God created the physical aspects of the world, but on the seventh day, he created the soul of the world and he imbued the physical reality with this spiritual essence. So, so if that's, if that's the case, if, if Shabbos is the seventh day and it imbues the physical universe with soul, that means Shabbos, you have to find a, a, um, a car, a correlating point with Shabbos and, and the ground. And in fact, you find it in terms of this idea that every seventh year, you take the entire year off. Now, that should sound familiar to all of us, because with the, all the quarantine that's going on, but really, we're getting a taste right now a little bit in, you know, obviously a different way, but, but nonetheless, a real taste of what it must have meant for, you know, an agriculture an agricultural-based economy um, where people, what it meant to work was to go out into the field and work. What it meant to essentially stay home and not to work the field, right? So we're getting a little bit of a taste of, of, of that Shemitah year, which is what the Parsha is talking about right now. You know, so it's, um, you know, and, 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 and why did we get that? Why did we get that? to get re-in-touch with what's actually here, what we actually have, what life actually is, and what the ultimate reality is as well. So all those things relate to Shabbos. It's all, it's all ultimately about Shabbos, because Shabbos is that testimony that it's just God in a revealed way. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast, where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.